you know, that client being disappointed, it may not be worth it if all they're going off of, well, he should have or she should have given it to me. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Brent? Doing very well. Uh, I understand you you disregarded the CDC guidelines and you left town for Thanksgiving, so please explain yourself. I did. I did. We were as safe as possible. We went up to Pine Top in the mountains in Arizona, and my parents live up there, so it was just my husband and I. There were under six people at our gathering. We were really safe, like the 14 days leading up to to leaving. We even got a COVID test before we left, just to be sure, because my grandma is with my parents, and we have to keep her very safe. Mm -hmm. So we were very, very safe. And so far, no one is sick. So I think we are doing okay. Um, But it was much needed. I think I've seen my parents only twice this entire year. So that's been rough. So I I got to see them, had amazing food. It even snowed up there, which was amazing to see like almost like a white Thanksgiving. So it was, I I think it was a good decision. So the the guilt nightmares that you've had since ignoring the CDC guidelines, have they been (laughs) terrible or the worst? (laughs) Um, They've been tolerable. Tolerable. I feel like when, once I'm past the, the 14 days past Thanksgiving, then then we're good to go, right? But they're, they're tolerable right now. You'll be over the guilt by then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad you uh, had a good trip in Thank a safe you. way. Of Thank course. you. Well, and, and you know, you're, you're the one to talk. I think you left town too, didn't you? I did. <laughs> there you go. I mean, come on. And so did you take all the necessary we were, precautions? No, we, we didn't have quite the same level of protocols uh, <laughs> as you. We uh, went to see my, my parents and older brother in Yuma. And then my younger sister was out there from Wichita. Okay. So we actually had quite a few people. Although we tried to kind of keep our distances and wear masks in the house and do things outside, which is possible in Yuma over Thanksgiving because the weather's beautiful. It did not snow. (laughs) It did not threaten to snow. It did not threaten to do anything other than be very sunny and warm. (laughs) Shocking. So shocking. 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 So that was, uh, that was our Thanksgiving. It was good. I'm always insistent that we have some sort of meat other than turkey or ham. And so I, uh, I, I cornered my way into cooking a tri-tip on the grill. So that was my contribution to Thanksgiving was to do the tri-tip uh, and to cook it in segments so that I could cover the various palates for doneness of beef among the family members. <laughs> Yeah, you're always going to have the picky people, right? You've got some where it's, uh, it's a little on the black side and some where, you know, the, the might still be kicking a little bit, huh? Right. I'm much more on the kicking side of things. And there are other people in my family that are very much on the black side of things. And it hurts me deeply to make it black. Yeah. So I, I tried to, to chop it into pieces so that I could kind of control that at least there would be a piece that I enjoy. And then a piece that they enjoy, and we don't have to mix pieces. 
That was a good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, can't, you can't just ruin a, a good piece of meat by making it completely black and burnt. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's my opinion. I know we're probably going to get some hate for that, but that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So speaking of uh, people hitting each other, I thought that today we would talk about penalty clauses or interorum clauses in wills and trusts. I didn't think there was anybody uh, more fun to talk about that with than TJ Ryan. TJ is a partner in the law firm Fraser Ryan Goldberg and Arnold in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, TJ is a graduate of Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and also a graduate from the University of Arizona Law School, James E. Rogers College of Law, to be official. Uh, TJ is uh, a good friend of ours, somebody we've known for a long time. He's He writes, he speaks on these topics, he does all sorts of estate planning work. He does a lot of uh, trust and estate litigation work. Uh, very sharp guy. And so, TJ, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Brent, I'm happy to be here. Thrilled, in fact. And what did you do for Thanksgiving? Uh, we stayed pretty close to home. You know, uh, my oldest son is now enrolled in a, in a private high school uh, here in Phoenix. And They've been very clear about wanting to make sure the kids are safe so that they can continue to attend school in person, um, which has been very hard for institutions in and around Arizona and around the country. So um, they've asked us as families to try to stay as close to home and protective as possible. And so we honored that. You know, we, we stayed in Phoenix. I was supposed to go, uh, Rachel, actually to Pine Top. My family has a place there, so we would have been there together. My father and sister went, and we stayed home. And, you know, those kinds of experiences are great because you get to try new things. I normally spend Thanksgiving planted firmly on a couch, and this was very different because we were constantly moving from 9 o'clock in the morning on, um, preparing dinner for the four of us. And I got the opportunity to smoke a turkey, which was phenomenal. Although I made the cardinal error and mistake that I did not turn it. And Brent, you as a meat cooking aficionado will know that on a large piece of meat like that, you need to roll it over, uh, make sure that you get both sides heated evenly. So one side was phenomenal, you know, nailed it right at 165 degrees. And then the other side uh, exceeded about 175. And while still juicy, was a, a bit tougher, let's say, in terms of eating. So that will turn into a stew or some type of turkey pot pie, I imagine. Yeah, I, I'm of the opinion there are only two good ways to cook turkey. One is smoking, and the other is deep frying. Every other way sucks. That's just my, that's just my opinion, though. Well, and I think the advent and and the use of thermometers has really changed the game. Um, and, and I think you might challenge yourself to bake one in the oven, uh, roast one in the oven with the thermometer, because I think once you know precisely what is going on temperature wise internal to that turkey, you can really kick it out of the ballpark. Yes, I think I think you're right. We've done some decent turkeys in the oven, but nothing like the smoke. Although when we when I smoke turkey, I usually just smoke the turkey breast. I don't try to do the whole bird. Uh, and that way I can control the temperature just a little bit better. The whole bird is uh, quite a different proposition. So kudos to you for going for it. Well, I, I, full disclosure, it was uh, essentially a breast. It was a bone-in breast. So imagine a turkey with its wings and legs removed 
um, which effectively looks like a bowling ball uh, of meat. So I smoked a bowling ball of turkey meat uh, and enjoyed it with my family on Thanksgiving. So that's a long-winded answer to your short question, what did you do? Yeah. Well, you're the only one of the three of us who did, who actually heeded the CDC guidelines. So you, you got a leg up. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's chat about penalty clauses or interorum clauses. So TJ, you want to give us just a quick primer on that and then we can start peeling the onion, so to speak. Sure. Um, yeah, interorum clauses are, are fun little animals. You know, when we think about them, an interorum clause dates back as far as the Bible, in fact. And if you think about what God said to Adam and Eve, uh, assuming this is your faith background, uh, you know, hey, you guys can hang out in this garden as long as you want. and Everything is there. But, you know, you see that tree over there? Um, if you take and eat that fruit, I'm going to boot you out of the garden and life's going to be really hard. And oh, by the way, I'm going to introduce the billable hour to make it even worse. So um, don't do that. And so, of course, what did they do? They immediately went over there and here we are billing point ones and point twos for the rest of our lives. But all kidding aside, you know, the, the word interorum is Latin. And it, it really means something along the lines of in fear or to strike fear or to frighten. And the idea of an interim clause, or sometimes these things are called no contest clauses, is it is a preventative measure that we will inject into documents, typically as standard, I, I don't necessarily want to call it boilerplate, because I know I talk to my clients about it, and we will tailor them. But I think a lot of lawyers include them as boilerplate in their wills and trusts. And the idea of the clause is to say, in the event that you challenge this document, and we'll talk about what challenge really means, then you are removed. Or potentially there might be some more tailored option of, oh, and if you challenge a document, you get a dollar. I've seen that more than a few times. Um, and, and, you know, really careful drafters, I think, will use these as well-designed preventative measures to try to reduce or even prevent litigation after death, uh, assuming that they are narrowly tailored or or properly tailored to address the issues that they uh, expect. And so just to maybe flesh that out just a little bit, this we're talking about a, a paragraph essentially in a will or in a trust that says if you bring a challenge, whatever that entails that we're going to talk about, then you're for, for lack of a good word, you're disinherited under that document. That's not the right term of art, but you know, you're disinherited in the sense that you're cut out of the document potentially and you get nothing. So, you know, it could have been like you were going to get almost everything, but then you trip up on this clause because you challenged the document in some way and now you're getting nothing or close to nothing. Right. So if it says that you get a dollar, if you, if you challenge it. And, and, I've, seen, and I've seen some Brent where, you know, it can be a dollar, it can be cut out. I've seen somewhere the person is treated as predeceased, uh, right. predeceasing the settlor. Yeah, which is which is tough. And sometimes it's predeceased and all of your descendants predeceased. It's like it cuts out your whole uh, family line sometimes. It can be very harsh. There's a, there's a, you know, for anybody who's thinking like, well, that seems really mean. What's the, what's the purpose of that? And there's a, there's some policy considerations somewhat historically, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, TJ, but somewhat historically, um, interorum clauses or penalty clauses were actually disfavored because there's a there's a 
policy, generally speaking, to disfavor the dead hand of the deceased person from uh, controlling people beyond the grave, right? And so if you have an interorum clause, that's a deceased person controlling living people on what they're doing now that the person is deceased, because by definition, somebody is dead at this point. And uh, there's a bit of a carve out for these penalty clauses to say, well, look, they're okay under certain circumstances that I'm sure we're going to get into, because we also have a countervailing policy to prevent or to disincentivize burdensome litigation about the estate, you know, so you don't end up in a like bleak house situation where you have decades and decades of litigation that just bleeds the estate dry and everybody ends up with nothing, even though they, somebody ends up winning, you know, that sort of thing. The interorum clause is meant to dissuade people from just pursuing endless litigation about a decedent's estate uh, or about a trust, but it's a, it's a count, the, the allowance of them to exist is sort of this countervailing policy against the policy that disfavors the dead hand of a deceased person controlling living people. That's right. And I think it, it's a really good example of what we see, especially in the litigation context of the intersection between two countervailing policies like you just described. On the one hand, the law adhors uh, forfeiture, right? So we don't want to see people forfeiting their assets. On the other hand, we also want to encourage people to bring valid claims that might undo acts that are by law illegal. So for example, you see a lot of interim clauses or no contest clauses that will say, if you bring a claim to challenge this document on the basis that I did not have capacity, you are cut out, you are removed, you, you are treated as predeceased. Well, uh, if we simply allowed those provisions to stand without question, you ice the the intentions and the abilities of people who would otherwise validly challenge these documents and most likely successfully in times challenge the documents and right the wrong that has been perpetuated. You know, if we have a document that was the product of undue influence or we know that the individual who signed the document did not have capacity, that is by law an invalid document. It is it is not something that the court should uphold as representing the final intentions uh, or the intentions at all of the settlor or the testator. And so from that standpoint, we want to balance that ability of interested parties and beneficiaries to challenge documents. But on the other hand, we also want to um, uphold the intent of settlers of trusts and testators of wills. And so it's that counterbalance that we really find on the needle point here in this discussion between making sure that we can encourage those challenges where they uh, are justified and on the, uh, at the same time upholding the intent of the settlor or testator to try to ice or quell or otherwise prevent, uh, like you said, the, the bleak house situation where someone is, is bringing claims for the sole purpose of leverage. Um, you know, and I will tell you as a litigator, I see it and I see it more often than I care to admit to. So then we've danced around it just a little bit. So then what, what is the way, uh, someone could make a valid claim relating to a document that has a penalty clause in it or an interorum clause in it and not run afoul of the interorum clause itself? Sure. So Arizona starting in about 2000, well, there's a, there's a case from 2000 called Shumway. 
And what Shumway talks about is what is really the standard that's announced in law. There's a provision in Arizona's probate code 2517 that essentially states that if you have a provision in a will that would penalize a person for contesting the will or instituting other proceedings or actions relating to the estate is unenforceable if probable cause exists for the contest proceedings or actions. And so in, in 2000, the Arizona Supreme Court came down with a decision called Shumway where they, dis, they, they really dove in and tried to explain what that probable cause standard means. And let me take a step back because I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So to answer your question directly, Brent, that ultimately someone can challenge a document, the validity of a document in which an interim clause exists as long as they have, according to Arizona law, probable cause to bring that claim. And the statute 2517 was enacted in 1995. So it took about five years of litigation for a case, the Shumway case, to matriculate up to the Supreme Court to then be, you know, handed to us as practitioners as instruction of how we go about addressing this issue. And what the Shumway court looked at was they said, hey, let's, we, we've identified these two countervailing principles. On the one hand, you have the, in, we want to uphold the intent of the decedent, but on the other hand, we also want to encourage these claims, like we talked about. We want to encourage claims that are valid and can stand on their own two feet um, to challenge documents, and even to the extent that those, those claims may not be successful. So we want to take and, and balance those two, those two pieces, and ARS 14-2517 is a product of the Uniform Probate Code, so they had the benefit of looking at the Uniform Probate Code and the way that the, the commissioners for the Uniform Laws Committee had addressed the issue, and they ultimately came to a conclusion in deciding that how to approach probable cause wasn't so much to look at the actual trial evidence, okay? Because by this point, you had already gone through a litigation. You'd gone through the, the, the extent of filing the claim, taking depositions, going to trial, and having a full trial on the merits, at which point the court has either decided, number one, the document's invalid, and if the document is invalid at that point, then the no contest clause is by definition invalid too, so you don't have to worry about it. So the cases we're really concerned with are the cases where the, the complainant has filed or the petitioner has filed a request or petition with the court to set aside the document, and the court has ultimately decided that the document is valid. And so now the question is, well, what do we do with the intent of the testator who said, well, if you challenge this, we want you out. And so 2517 tells us, well, we're going to look at the probable cause. Well, what probable cause? Did, did the person bringing the claim have probable cause? And so in announcing their decision, the way that they talk about it is to really look at a couple of different pieces of how the claim arose. And what they're looking at specifically is at the time that the person brought the claim, what was their subjective understanding of the claim? What did they know about the claim at the time? So again, remember, this is at the time of filing. So when the lawyer put their name on the pleading and sent it down with the runner, what did the client know? And did they have a reasonably subject, a reasonable subjective belief that this was going to be uh, a claim that would fly. Part of that analysis is whether they've been advised by counsel. So not only are we going to look at 
the understanding of the individual client, the proponent of the claim. Because remember, as attorneys, we're all just agents, right? So we're doing this on someone else's behalf and bequest. So we're looking at the client. So the client is going to be under the microscope. We need to understand what the client understood. And as long as the, 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 the client had an understanding that they had a reasonable likelihood of success after they had been advised by counsel. And advice of counsel is not required. Of course, not everybody has an attorney, but being properly advised by an attorney is an element that the court will look at. So one of the pieces of that is if you do uh, work with counsel, if the, if the proponent of the challenge is going to engage with an attorney, that they have given the attorney all of the facts, okay? So, so as attorneys now, we have a responsibility to take a look at the issues and say, boy, that's a really strong case, or on the other side of it to say, you might wanna think about maybe going a different direction. And so to the extent that, that the court's gonna investigate this issue on the back end, that's sort of the discovery that you're going to undertake. And you'll see in a lot of these cases, I'm defending one of these right now, and a lot of the discovery will revolve around what these proponents knew at the beginning, right? So, and a lot of times that's sort of self-effectuating because we're taking discovery and we're, you know, we're, we're doing discovery with the kids. Well, if the child is a remote child, lived in another state, didn't live with mom or dad, they're not going to know very much. And that becomes very important to this analysis because at the end of the day, if the court decides not only is the document valid, but you really didn't have two legs to stand on and you really didn't have a subjective belief to bring this claim, they're going to uphold, that court is going to uphold the document. So, and, and this is maybe a, a crude restatement of what you just said. So you just correct me uh, if I get this totally wrong. But the idea is that the judge is going to evaluate what the client knew on the moment that they filed their claim and then take, taking what the client knew, kind of understanding those facts and then saying, would an ordinary prudent, reasonable person have also thought that they had a shot at winning this case. Like the client may think 100%, there's no way they can lose the case subjectively, but that's not sufficient. Like the facts, if you kind of put them in a vacuum of like, would an ordinary, reasonable, prudent person have, could have reached the same conclusion? If they could have, then the court will say, okay, you had probable cause for bringing the claim. If the court can't reach that conclusion, then you've got a problem. Which gets to your point of like, well, if the client didn't even know anything about the circumstances, so they literally were, were running on no real facts, a reasonable person isn't going to draw the same subjective conclusion. That's exactly right. And let me just read from the case. I think it's, it's helpful. They, they're they're, they're uh, quoting from the restatement and they say, probable cause is defined as the existence at the time of the initiation of the proceeding of evidence which would lead a reasonable person properly informed and advised to conclude that there's a substantial likelihood that the contest or attack will be successful. So I thought the way that you restated it was perfect. It's really, really important when we take these cases in as litigators to do a very full, rich, deep dive with the clients to understand what is the evidence that you are basing this on, you know? And it's interesting because the Shumway case actually was a, uh, an undue influence case. And there was a presumption of undue influence in that case. And that's a, it's, a, it's a twist and an element of that case that I think is somewhat underappreciated. And that is that the fact 
that there was a presumption of undue influence, in fact, was not enough for the court in that instance. I mean, and, and remember, back when Shumway was decided, the rule in Arizona was if there was a presumption of undue influence, the person who was presumed to be the influencer had to overcome that presumption by clear and convincing evidence. So if you could check the boxes of undue influence now, you had the highest civil standard stacked against you, right? And the court said in that case, that wasn't even enough here. There had to be more, right? And so, so they had to have enough to go on. And, and I think that's a, an underappreciated element of the Shumway case, but important in making sure that we understand in, a, in evaluation of the cases that we can't just listen to the client who says, I'm unhappy because I'm not getting enough or in some cases anything. And we should talk about the I'm not getting anything distinction in terms of the use of interarm clauses later. But you know, that client being disappointed, it may not be worth it if all they're going off of, well, he should have or she should have given it to me. I think that's a really good point you make. I feel like we've seen a lot of clients who, you know, initially come into us, you know, they've got the case and it's, yeah, it's my dad passed away or my, my friend passed away and I didn't get enough. So I'm, I'm going to contest the will. But okay, well, let's, let's break this down a little bit more. It's like exactly what you said, TJ, like, what do you have? Do you have video evidence of the day that they executed the will? What was their capacity like that day? Did they execute it from a hospital bed? Was, was there you know, potentially undue influence? And did someone draft the will up for them, put it in their lap with a pen right there and kind of help them along? I mean, there's so many other factors. And it's like you said, you have to really do that discovery up front and really find out more of exactly what happened when that document was executed before you can really give the client an idea of, hey, this isn't going to be a valid claim. I don't think you're going to be successful at all. Or, hey, I think you might have a shot. Let's see what we've got. It's interesting, too, when you read the Shumway case, because they almost, the, the, you know, the Supreme Court of Arizona is obviously populated by very talented people who are very smart. Um, they don't get there by winning the lottery. They get there by, by earning their way there. And I have a lot of respect for the, the folks that occupy that, that mantle. They go through all of the facts that was presented at the trial court about this decedent. And it's really interesting because remember, they, they, they find the will valid, but at the same time, they also find that, that the petitioner had probable cause. And they go out of their way to almost lump piles of piles of evidence together. The guy was blind. There was a letter from a doctor who said that he was incapacitated four days later. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you can kind of read that and to see, okay, if I'm a newer attorney in this area, what are the things I need to be looking for in terms of my checklist of what are the indicia that are going to give me probable cause to, to bring the claim? And, and I think people overlook the, the, the real rich benefit that we get in cases like this, where the Supreme Court's kind of giving you a wink and a nod of, hey, if you're going to go down this road, here are the types of things you need to be thinking of and, and making sure that you're properly advising your client. Because the last thing you want to do is get all sort of fired up, go file your petition and only to find out six months into it uh, and you're bounced out on summary judgment. And oh, by the way, now your client gets nothing. Um, that's not the call you want to make to your carrier. You know, so we joke a little bit um, in our practice area about the dangers of dabbling in the probate and trust litigation arena. And I've, I've given a couple of presentations to the Maricopa County Bar, literally titled, The Dangers of Dabbling, 
talking about probate and trust litigation. And this is one of the areas that we talk about is understand the documents you're litigating and how they operate. And if you don't, you run the risk of running into some pretty deep and troublesome problems. I think it's also important too to point out, I can't remember if it was the Shumway case or another case on this topic, but each claim that a contestant bring has to be supported by probable cause. So, you know, a lot of time we see in litigation, you know, you've, you've got the one good claim, but you're also going to throw in a couple other ones and you know, hopefully one of them is going to stick, right? But when you have a no contest clause, every single claim, so if you're going to go with undue influence and you're going to go with capacity, both of those two claims have to be supported by probable cause. So it's, it's a lot of work that you need to do up front. Uh, Rachel, I feel like you're setting me up because you, you're, you're getting us to talk about my favorite case ever. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's called the Shaheen Trust case. And it's my favorite for a lot of reasons, in part because I completely disagree with its outcome. I think it has some of the best named parties in the world. Uh, when your trustee's name is Twinkle Shaheen, right? I mean, I'm all for creative naming of children, but Twinkle Shaheen might take the cake. Brent, do you have any it's, children named Twinkle? No, no, but that is the best name I have ever heard for a litigant in a trust and estates case. Hands uh, down, I, it wins. It, it does. And I, 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 it's funny because I gave a presentation where I said that and I was in Tucson. I believe it was the Arizona Fiduciary Association and I started going on and on about how I loved the name Twinkle Shaheen. And one of the attorneys came up to me afterwards and said, I represented them in that case. And, uh, and he said, you know, I'd love to introduce you to them. And I said, well, we'll have to figure that out at a different day. But um, please do tell your client that I really enjoy her name. Um, but the importance of the, of the Shaheen case is, uh, to Rachel's point, that it talks about the fact that you, you can't use the age-old methodology of throw as much crap against the wall as you possibly can in hopes that one or more of your claims are going to stick. And what's really interesting to me about the Shaheen case, and, and I'm going to blame you, Rachel, for taking me down this rabbit hole, but forgive me, but this is one of my favorite things to talk about in this area, is that the, the interim clause there was very narrowly drafted. Okay, so uh, I want to read it because I think it's important for the discussion. It says, if any beneficiary under this trust in any manner, directly or indirectly, contests, attacks, uh, excuse me, contests or attacks the validity of either the settlor's will, this trust, or any disposition under either by filing suit against the trustee that any share or interest, blah, 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 they're cut out. Okay. The way I read that document, the way I read that language is, if you are challenging the validity of any of these things, okay, remember validity of, then you're cut out. Very typical, very typical language in an interim clause. But what happens here is Twinkle, in her sparkling wisdom, is the trustee, and, and Twinkle is challenged by two, I assume, uh, the case doesn't explain, but I assume that they are relatives of some type who are beneficiaries of the trust as well. And they file a complaint against the trustee not challenging validity. They don't challenge the validity. They challenge Twinkle's administration of the trust. And they say that in nine different ways, she has violated her fiduciary duties. Okay, now let's pause for a minute here because I think it's incredibly important to appreciate that when you say that the trustee has violated their fiduciary duties, 
aren't we in that same breath and intrinsic to that statement, assuming therefore that the document that made that person a trustee is valid, right? I so, see no other way to do it. So already we have consented to the validity of the document, but nevertheless, the uh, Roberts, who were the uh, proponents and who had sued Twinkle, were self-represented. And I think it bears mentioning that the age-old adage that he who represents himself has a fool for a client, and that is absolutely the truth in this case. So they file a complaint or petition uh, against Twinkle Shaheen as trustee, alleging nine different breaches of fiduciary duty. Uh, the court dismisses every single one of them, but the trial court refuses to apply the interim clause uh, against the Robertsons and or the Roberts, excuse me. And Twinkle is not satisfied. So she takes it up on appeal. And God only knows how that oral argument went, because I can't figure out from the record on appeal how they got from that interim clause to the discussion about this applies to claims of breach of fiduciary duty. Because as I read the, the clause, it doesn't. So somewhere in there, I think the Robertsons ticked someone off at the appeals court, um, offended them, I don't know, and they were ready to take out their wrath on them because they cobbled together what I can only say is kind of a thinly veiled repudiation of the Robertsons, uh, Roberts claims, and they kick them to the side and, and remand the case telling uh, to essentially disinherit the Roberts. Okay. And, th and the reason they do that, which brings us back to Rachel's point, the reason that they justify that is, is they explain that in this interim clause analysis, de determining whether you have triggered the interim clause, you have to look at every single claim. So if one of the claims was invalidity and that triggered the interim clause, that would have to stand on its own two feet and be supported by probable cause consistent with the standard that was announced in Shumway. But they didn't put in one claim, they put in nine. And the court found that eight of the nine, eight of the nine had probable cause. The one that they took umbrage with was a claim that the Roberts said that Twinkle could not sprinkle, sorry, had to, uh, herself with benefits except for once a year. And she was making distributions to herself on a quarterly basis. And the court said that really didn't have any probable cause. But again, let's pause for a minute because at no point had the Roberts, and the Roberts challenged the validity of the document or the disposition. They weren't challenging its validity. They were cha challenging its administration. So the Shaheen case is interesting for us as practitioners for the sole point of saying each claim has to be supported by probable cause. But I think if for real students of the law, nerds like me that love to drill down and kind of understand the way that the appellate court was thinking about this, I struggle with it as a case. I really do. And I'm, I don't mind saying that on a recorded medium, just because I would love to have a, a sit down meeting with the panel and understand what, what was it in the record that took you from this language in the interim clause to complete cutting out of the Robertses uh, from, uh, as beneficiaries of the trust. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, it's not my favorite outcome in a case. There are elements to the case that are very useful law. This is not to say that the, the, their probable cause conclusion doesn't result in, in useful law. I mean, it, it is pretty clear cut uh, as a result, so it's not difficult to follow that result. But 
they also reach a conclusion in the case that the rules or the laws of Shumway that applied in the will context also apply in the trust context, even though the two kind of come under different statutory schemes. It was actually, to, to tell you a quick story, uh, four or five years ago, it was- We all love story oh, Absolutely. It was kind of on my hit list because I was on the legislative committee, or still am on the legislative committee for the Arizona State Bar Probate and Trust section. Uh, but that was on my hit list of we should sort out this issue because we had a statute on wills for penalty clauses. We didn't have one in the trust code for trusts. And so we went through this whole exercise of coming up with uh, a statute for trusts. Ultimately, we basically did a trust statute that is identical to the will statute, although I wanted to go a lot further and really start chopping back against some of the penalty clauses, which have grown into, as I think you said, a, a, a new creature almost, um, because they, they reach very far and wide um, in their terminology. But we ultimately decided not to go quite that far. So now we have a statute in the trust code that is identical to the uh, probate code, essentially. But one of the other uh, lessons that I take from the Shaheen case, other than I wanted to write legislation about it, was it is a, at least a warning that the courts might be willing to read penalty clauses very broadly. Uh, because that's, to your point, like that's exactly what happened. They read that penalty clause as broadly as they could come up with. And that's a little bit scary for anybody who's going to be involved in litigation that involves uh, a potential penalty clause that could cut somebody out because uh, now you as the practitioner or the lawyer advising the client also have to read that clause very broadly. That's absolutely true. Um, and you can kind of a little bit in the Shaheen case in its text, read between the lines, again, understanding that the Roberts were pro per, they were inappropriate persona, they're representing themselves. They did not maybe approach the case in understanding all of its nuances. And Twinkle was represented by counsel. Um, I don't remember who was counsel on it, but uh, obviously qualified counsel who knew what was going on and how to, how to address the issues and navigate around and with, in this case, the interim clause. I get the impression that maybe the Robertsons missed it. And so the Court of Appeals was stuck with whatever interpretation that Twinkle and her lawyer wanted to have the court adopt. And that if they had pled or sought a ruling that said that, that these challenges triggered the interim clause, if you're, if you're a, an appeals court judge and that's a finding of fact, you're, you're stuck with it. Because I, I, while it is a de novo review, if there were certain findings that that was predicated on as well, it's still going to be stuck with it. Now, Darren, I want to ask you a question because you reminded me that you were part of that drafting team for um, what you alluded to, which is 1410113, the, the trust equivalent to 1425.17. And I've always wondered to myself the following question. Why not consolidate 2517 and 1410113 into the governing instruments provision of the code? You know, I, I always look at the governing instruments provision, which talks about rules of construction, things along those lines, as being a very helpful tool because it applies very broadly. It applies to both wills and trusts. 
um, and goes even beyond that into other governing instruments, including non-probate transfer provisions, it would seem to me that maybe the most complete expression would be to have the provisions consolidated into a unified place in the code under governing instruments. Yeah, uh, no, it's a good question. It kind of gets to the point uh, that a lot of penalty clauses, uh, at least on their face, claim to apply to documents that are not wills and that are not trusts. They reside in a will or trust, but they claim to apply to contests that relate to things like IRAs or life insurance policies or you know something else that's outside of the will and outside of the trust. The, the short answer to your question is that I agree with you. Uh, that would be a nice way uh, logically to tie everything together. In the context of making the changes that we did, there's a little bit of a political play that happens in the background where the state bar is willing to throw its support, generally speaking, more easily behind quote unquote technical corrections to the statute than wholesale changes to the statute. And so we decided that it, it was much more in the technical correction basket to add a mirror image to the trust code that already existed in, in the probate will statute than to eliminate a statute from uh, chapter two that has been there, as you point out, since the 90s, and then incorporate it into a brand new section so that and, and expand it into an area, i.e. governing documents beyond just wills and trusts. That's an area that there is no court case that has ever covered it. And so we, we justified it by saying, well, look, what we're really doing with this trust code addition is just codifying the finding or the ruling of the court in Shaheen. Because they said the will standard applies to trust. Therefore, we got a trust code section that mirrors the will section. Therefore, we're not really changing the law. We're just codifying existing law. So there was that little bit of weird politics happening in the background. That's why it ended up the way it did. That makes sense. It's also instructive that if you want to push legislation through the Arizona State Bar, then call it technical corrections, even when it's wholesale modifications. But. That's that's the best way to do it. Yes. Technical corrections. <laughs> uh, we're working on a, uh, this, is a this is a little bit off topic, but we're, we're working on a self-settled spendthrift trust section right now or statute right now that would be added into the trust code. That's not a technical correction. So uh, it might be a little bit of a, a harder sell. I think it gets a, a bit of closer scrutiny and you really have to vet those statutes through more sections of the bar in order to get the bar itself as a as an entity to support it and to throw its support behind it. Whereas with technical corrections, I think there's an assumption that it doesn't need quite as much of a deep dive and you don't need to circulate it to quite as many of the sections for comment. That makes sense. It's all about, it's all a, just the political process and what's easiest and what's not. Well, and you could do an entire podcast, about a series of podcasts about self-settled spendthrift trusts and the policy concerns and provisions there. Um, before we get too far off topic, you know, back to Rachel's point, you know, the, the, the Shaheen case, as fun as it is, standing for the proposition that claims must be supported by probable cause, each claim. Um, there's a case called Wolf that was decided in 2017 uh, that further illuminates uh, the analysis of Shaheen and talking about how we're going to focus on the claims themselves and not every single allegation. And in that case, that's another case where 
the interim clause wasn't even discussed. They don't quote it. They don't give you the language. They don't talk about it. They just say there was an interim clause. Like, you know, aha, there was one. And so it's going to apply. And then the claims that were actually made were made by interested party beneficiaries against a trustee. And they were allegations of elder financial abuse. So again, we're not talking about, you know, validity. We're talking about completely separate claims. But the upshot of that case is that we're not going to go down to the binary granular level of looking at every single allegation that is made, but instead we're going to look on at every single focus of claim. Now, what was unique about that case, the Wolf case, is that when you think about elder financial abuse, um, which is thankfully not something I do often, um, but we do deal with those cases from time to time, that each act is its own technically its own trigger of the statute, meaning that if on day one, you remove, you know, $1,000 from the vulnerable adults account, and then two weeks later, you have them sign a deed or, you know, you, you use assets not for their benefit, right? So you, you take money away from them, take assets away from them at a later date. Each one of those independent acts is going to, it's going to stand on its own two feet. And that was what the, the, the challenge was in Wolf is that the, the defending parties who were represented by very, very competent lawyers said, hey, wait a minute, you know, if we're going to take Shaheen and, and apply it here, Shaheen says that every claim should stand on its own two feet and, and be supported by probable cause. And while there might be probable cause for, let's say, these six acts, there's zero probable cause for these two over here. And the, the case doesn't unfortunately dive into that level of, of strict read, but the point of the case is to say that, you know, when you think about a claim, you think about the claim globally. So while their claim was each one of these acts was another 46456 uh, activity, violated activity, those are still all one claim. And I thought that was an interesting concept. And again, they, they really gloss over the application of the interim clause because they don't even give us the language. So where I really get spun up about these things is I want to look at the individual language because if, if let's go back to the policy considerations, right? If on the one hand, we're trying to uphold the intent of the, of the testator, the settler of the trust, why aren't we starting there, right? Why aren't we looking at the document and saying, is this what they intended? Now, again, we don't get the benefit of the full trial record when we get these, you know, four pages, double, you know, single spaced decisions from Westlaw. But it's very challenging for us as practitioners to understand, okay, did they make the argument that the interim clause doesn't apply? But this, and maybe it was one of those big, broad-reaching interim clause that you're talking about, Brent. And I, I think, you know, I've got a real problem with some of these clauses, both as a litigator and as a planner. And, and I'm just going to yank the wheel on this podcast a little bit hard left for a second, if you don't mind. And let's talk about this, because I think I, what I heard from you earlier is that you share the same concern. Um, let me pose some language to you. And this is from what I call the supercharged no contest clause. And it says essentially the following, that if you object in any court to the validity of this trust, any trust created under the terms of this instrument, my will, any beneficiary designation of an annuity, a retirement plan, an IRA, a KEO, a pension, profit sharing plan, insurance policy signed by me, that's then collectively referred to as documents, or any amendments or codicils to any documents, you have violated the interim clause. 
right? Now, most folks would read that and say, wow, that's really strong, and it is. But one of the things that concerns me is the unintended consequences. How many times do we see well-drafted documents that include broad interim clauses, and now we need to go pursue maybe one of the children who might be a beneficiary under the same document, might benefit by the application of this interim clause, right? And you go to remedy the wrong, that they, while dad or mom was in hospice care, you know, on a breathing apparatus, completely incapacitated, and she signs over the $2 million IRA to Sister Jan, right? And Marsha is ticked off. And Marsha and Jan are both beneficiaries of the trust. And so Marsha goes and files a lawsuit to invalidate the IRA beneficiary designation for, in favor of Jan, right? Because mom was not capacitated to make that change. Well, what's interesting is the dichotomy that's created, right? Because the public policy that's been announced in Arizona case law so far is all about the document itself. If there's no chain challenge to the underlying document, the language stands. And now you have to read it and interpret it and apply it directly, right? So Jan goes back to court and says, oh, you want to sue me for this change. You have now triggered the interim clause. Now, we haven't gotten here yet in Arizona jurisprudence, but I think this is one of several different iterations that we're going to see. And it concerns me because, again, the whole point of these documents, the whole point of these clauses is to try to limit litigation. And yet I can sit here and the more I cogitate on these issues, I start coming up with more and creative ways to, you know, I hate to say this, but file lawsuits, right, to try to challenge different activities. Is, is that sort of the concern that you share, Brent? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, and you're, you're kind of pointing this out, I think, when you're asking about why we didn't consolidate the penalty clause statutes under the governing instruments section of our statutes. Nobody who isn't a lawyer will even care about that distinction, but there's a hole in the law. The hole in the law is we have cases and statutes that say penalty clauses are perfectly fine in wills. And the section in, in the probate code that governs penalty clauses and wills is focused on wills and the estate, the quote unquote estate. And that has, that's a special term of art. That doesn't include everything. And then the trust code section that I was alluding to focuses just on trusts and the trust property. And there are assets that are not the trust property and they are not the estate. And which, you know, kind of gets to your point about beneficiary designations and all sorts of um, accounts. Those aren't governed by wills. They're not part of the estate. They're not part of the trust property. So how can you legally write a clause in a trust that uh, governs instruments that are not in, not governed by the trust agreement at, at all? And, assets that are not part of the trust property. So one of the things that we also tried to do when we, um, when we wrote the trust code section was to make it so that you cannot change the standard. And so there's a section in the trust code that says, these are the things that, that your trust instrument may not change. And we said, you may not change the standard that applies under this new trust code penalty clause section, which I think means in a sort of uh, side door way, although we couldn't do it quite as directly as I was hoping, means that if you have a trust code provision that says, and if you challenge my beneficiary designations in my IRAs or Kiag plans or whatever, that that doesn't 
get covered by our statute. You have, you have tried to modify the standard of the statute and that doesn't work. So we, we kind of try, I think there's a, I still think there's a hole. I don't think it's, you know, I, my opinion on that is not necessarily law. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily how courts would come out on that issue, but I think it's just a bridge too far to be able to say challenging documents that have absolutely nothing to do with, say, your trust or your estate under your will, all of those actions are brought into the penalty clause. I just think it's, it's too much. It's way beyond what the law has recognized. And yet you see it all the time. And, and I think the way I'm looking at this and preparing mentally for the case that I know is going to come, I, I know this case is coming. I'm just sort of sitting and impatiently waiting for it because I know it's going to land on my doorstep at one point. Uh, and in fact, I've had a case this year where we chewed around the edges of this. And, and, and I'll, let me just sort of lay out the facts and, and you can see. So the, the trust had a very broad interim clause like this. And my client was a beneficiary of the trust. We had no problem with the validity of the trust whatsoever. But through sort of a, what I'll call a cacophony of circumstances, my client had a claim against the decedent settlor's estate. And we now had to decide, do we bring a claim which is clearly going to violate the interim clause? Because the interim clause said in black and white, if you bring a claim against my estate, whether it has probable cause or not, you're out. You're done. You'd get nothing from this trust. So now you're having to balance, okay, is my interest in the trust worth it to forego my claim? You, you, you have this binary decision of, well, if I, if I make the claim against the estate, yeah, maybe I recover there, or I can take my, my, trust, my trust benefit. And, and, and I'll tell you, we spent a significant amount of time researching that issue to try to find case law across the country that would deal with that. We couldn't find any. Now, I will say, you know, if you have a, a, maybe a different situation, let's, let's use the example of the IRA beneficiary designation change, right? So we all know that that's a, that's a non-probate transfer. It's a will substitute. It's, it's um, you know, you get to change the designation of beneficiaries of an asset based on a signature. And sometimes not even a signature anymore. It's, a, you know, a couple clicks on the internet, right? You know, you, you go to johnhancock.com. And, you know, type in, I want, you know, Sally to have the, the benefits and clickety-click, clickety-click, click, click, and you get a confirming email, right? Who knows who that was behind the keyboard? And talk about, uh, you know, again, another podcast topic of, you know, the fraud that could be perpetuated digitally these days. But let's say you have probable cause to bring that claim. Well, again, the case law that we have so far is already outdated because it deals with probable cause to challenge that document. And if that document is not being challenged, then you know, do we think the courts are going to be willing to extend that probable cause finding out beyond to say, oh, no, 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 no. We want to make sure that policy supports bringing valid claims. I, I'm, I'm willing to go on record and say, I think that's the right outcome, because I don't think if you dug up you know, granny from the grave and said, hey, granny, um, we're going to cut out uh, Marsha, because she's suing Jan for what Jan did, you know, illegally, that's what you want, right? I mean, the answer is probably no. And again, if we're trying to understand what the intention is, well, the intention is that we don't want beneficiaries filing lawsuits for the sole purpose of leverage, right? And to try to get a better deal. So I, I think there's a lot of thread of, of usable material 
from the Shumway series of cases where we can look at even just Shumway as a policy expression of Arizona and, and apply it going forward to say, no, we want to encourage valid claims. We want to give people, as they like to talk about, the keys to the courthouse, right? We want to make sure that they have access to come in and write, excuse me, they have access to come in and write wrongs. And if we prohibit them or give them a binary decision of, well, yeah, you can come write the wrong, but you don't get your trust, you know? Because if you think about the other side of that from a policy perspective, we're now encouraging people to create documents that would perpetuate illegal activity, right? So if, 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 I'm, if I'm Jan and I know that, well, I'm, I'm not gonna challenge my own actions, right? But they might, but if they're subject to this interim clause, then maybe they're disincentivized from doing it. I'm just going to go and act horribly, right? I'm going to change every single beneficiary designation. I'm going to do a, you know, a beneficiary deed from the house. I mean, I'm just going to go wholesale and go bananas. I don't see a court agreeing that that should happen. But when it comes to this binary decision about, you know, claim against the estate versus take your, you know, take your benefits from the trust, that one's tougher, right? Because is there is there a policy out there that I'm not aware of that encourages people to file claims against estates, right? I mean, are creditors given rights? Maybe, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, it's interesting as it relates to the non-probate transfers in this little donut hole in the law. I mean, it. it I, I think I, I agree with you, certainly in this context of if if the outcomes, if the legal outcomes or the the, the way the court would view it would be one of these three options, then I think the option that the court would follow is the one you're suggesting, which I'll use as the last option. Option one would be, nope, interim clauses can't reach that far. They don't apply to non-probate transfers. Therefore, you can sue about those all you want. Uh, Option number two, yes, interim clauses apply, but probable cause is not the standard. Just if you file a suit about this document, you're out. And the third option being, Yes, the interim clause can apply to those governing documents, but we will still apply the probable cause standard to allow the claims to come in. So the interim clause cannot uh, cut somebody out. That's probably the the most fair outcome. And when you look at you know everything, you know assets that would be covered by the will, i.e., the estate, the non-probate transfers, the, the trust will substitute type transfers. If you kind of look at everything holistically, that's that logically it makes sense to me that you'd apply the same standard across the board. We just don't know that that's the actual outcome. Right. But, you know, I think what we've seen, at least in the last, I'll call it 30 years, is the explosion of the specie of will substitutes. You know, the ability to pass assets without using a formal testamentary document is pretty amazing these days, you know. And our good friend Darren Case and his father David Case were big proponents of an LLC modification to the statute that allow for non-probate transfer provisions directly in LLC documents. You know, makes total sense from the standpoint that we can pass cars and houses and really anything we else we want simply by having a beneficiary designation. So you know, it makes a lot of sense. But but you're right. We still need to have a unification of the overarching policy to encourage valid challenges while discouraging the invalid ones. And that's where really the rubber meets the road, is that that intersection. Yes, that's where you live. That's where you make your money, TJ. 
Well, I joke, I joke, and it's not funny, but I joke that we are arbiters of human dysfunction, yeah. you know, um, and, and the litigation space is, you know, really rife with examples of people who probably could have sat down and, and resolved their issues if they could A, be adults about it, B, get around a table, and C, just come to a reasonable conclusion, you know, I mean, I, it, almost every case that I have that doesn't settle in the first uh, I'd say three, four months is one of those cases where people just get it, something stuck in their craw and they want to go fight about it. You know, my partner, John Fitzpatrick has a great saying. He says, there's two types of principle, the type that bears interest and the type that does not, which one do you want to part with first? Right. The, the joke being that you can either stand on principle and pay a bunch of your principle to us as lawyers in attorney's fees, or you can take a step back and get to a reasonable conclusion. And I think people appreciate that clarity, you know, to understand like, okay, let me take a deep breath for a second and, and really ask myself, do I want to do this? Because when you're six months into it and the legal bills are piling up and everybody's yelling at each other and you're fighting over discovery disputes, you know, and how many depositions are we going to take and blah, 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 blah. All that stuff starts to take on a new meaning. You know, the, 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 the litigation system, while a very, very good system of trying to find the truth, is not perfect. And it's by no means inexpensive, you know, especially to, to do it the right way. But, you know, it, it's for, for, for guys like us that really get excited about the little nuances like this, it's, it is, I will admit, a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there. Anybody uh, listening can obviously tell that this is a meaty topic uh, and, and we have not said everything there is to say about this. So we may have to have you back so we can uh, come full circle on this topic and, and many others that we've alluded to. But uh, so TJ, how can people contact you should they want to do so? Sure. Uh, we've got a great website uh, for the law firm, Fraser Ryan, Goldberg, and Arnold. I would start there to do the investigation, and it's uh, www.frgalaw.com. My email and phone number is right there, um, but my phone number is 602-277-2010, and my email is my name, TJ Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at frgalaw.com. Okay, excellent. Well, anybody who needs to get a hold of you, hopefully they heard that. We'll also stick your contact information in the show notes as well. So people will uh, be able to find it there. So uh, hopefully they will find you in due course. Uh, as usual, I appreciate you and thank you very much for joining us. Honored to be here and really thrilled with this discussion. Uh, it's, it's great to be in the room with smart people talking about complex issues. So Brent, Rachel, thank you very, very much. Appreciate that. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.